All right, good morning, everybody. We'll go ahead and get started. Um, sorry about the lack of visual aids this morning, but I hope um, us to be able to teach the content. It'll be helpful. Um, we weren't able to kind of get the uh, projector working. So um, we're going to talk about um, the dignity of women this morning, the way in which Christianity um, helps to dignify people like Carla Owens and others. So um, let's pray together, and then we'll, we'll begin. Father, thank you for the ways in which your word and your gospel and your people, your church, have been used by you to change not just people's hearts, but the way people think and live and interact and relate to one another. Lord, your gospel is powerful and it's able to transform not just individual lives, but when you work in such a profound way, um, it, can, it can change cultures for a season, it can change areas of the world. It can change the way people relate to one another on a, on a wider scale. So Lord, we, we pray that we would be encouraged by what we discover and learn this morning about the ways in which your world, your word has dignified women and, and, um, and exalted your image bearers in that way. And so we pray that you would, you would bless us and help us and teach us this morning and encourage our hearts from history and from your work in the world today and the ways in which you have done this in Jesus name we pray. Amen. All right, here's what um, Daphne Hampson said. Daphne Hampson is a, is a, was a self-described feminist of the, of the last 50 or 60 years. She says, I'm a Western person living in a post-Christian age who has taken something with me from Christian thinkers but who has rejected the Christian myth. Indeed, I want to go a lot further than that. The myth is not neutral. It's highly dangerous. It is a brilliant subtle, elaborate male cultural projection calculated to legitimize a patriarchal world and to enable men to find their way within it. So she was raised in a Christian environment of some sort. She describes Christianity as a myth, and she describes the reason that she rejects it as because of the way it affects women, specifically. Is that true? Is that what history has revealed about Christianity and its impact on women in particular. Margaret Atwood, you may have heard of her before, um, she wrote in her book, The Handmaid's Tale, which was in 1985. And in that book, she depicted a dystopian kind of nightmare future of slavery as a product of religious belief. And here's what she said about um, what she saw in the future regarding um, how Christianity would affect Um, the world. She said that it would bring people into cultural and sexual slavery as a result of religion. And the interesting thing is, is that it's not the absence of Christianity which has created sexual slavery in the history of the world. In fact, there are an estimated 21 million slaves right now in human trafficking worldwide, which is a $150 billion industry. And that's not because of Christianity. That's fueled by global pornography, which Christians oppose. The reality is that the sexual slavery, abuse of women, neglect of children in the ancient world was dispelled by the advance of Christianity. And so what I want to talk about in this particular class is kind of four, four different areas. I want to talk about what, how women were treated in the ancient world in terms of Greco-Roman and Islamic. And then I want to look at how secularism responded to that, how Christianity responded to that, and then the impact of Christianity 
on the treatment of women. So first of all, let's talk about the degradation of women in the ancient world. Um, the early Christians lived in a culture where a, where a small, privileged, elite group of people had sexual access to the rest of the population. These cultures abused and created exploitation and suffering for women and girls. That was the, the paganism in which many Christians found themselves in the first century. And at the time that the New Testament was written, fathers routinely gave away three daughters or their daughters as child brides. Men would force their wives in pagan cultures to have abortions, and they were forced to abandon sick, disabled, and female newborn babies. There's no expectation that husbands whatsoever would be faithful to their wives. It was commonplace for men to use both male and female slaves for sexual gratification. And in addition, men had extra mistresses and their wives had to accept that and they were not permitted to have the same. That was the general cultural milieu in which Christianity emerged. Now, I wanna talk about the low status of women in the Greek world. First of all, if you were a woman in first century Athens in Greece, you were largely not permitted to leave your house unless you were accompanied by a trustworthy male escort, either a husband or a family member or someone like that. When the husband's male guests were invited to the home, you would not be permitted to eat with the rest of the group or to interact with them, although you could eat later after the guests had left. The average Athenian woman had the social status of a slave. Women were not permitted to go to school or to speak in public, on, except for on rare occasions where they might have had money to do so. The Athenian woman was deemed inferior to man in every single way. Well, that's Greece. What about Rome? Well, they didn't fare much better. A married woman under Roman law was placed under the absolute control of her husband, who had ownership of her and all of her possessions. She was legally pro prohibited from inheriting property, and this law received significant pushback, not only from um, some in the, in the culture, but chiefly in the church, namely Augustine. Augustine was one who pushed back significantly about this law that forbade, forbade um, women from owning property or inheriting any property. Um, a husband in, a, in the Roman world could divorce his wife if she merely went out in public without a veil. Although the husband could divorce the wife, the wife could never divorce him. To kill his wife for a non-adulterous offense required the consent of an extended family trial, but in the case of adultery, that consent was not necessary. So you've got Rome, you've got Greece. What about the Islamic world? Well, a little over two decades ago, news reports revealed that women in Iran were forbidden to wear lipstick, and if they did, they could be arrested and jailed. Now, I'm not sure if that's still the case. That was a, that's quite a, quite a dated statistic in our contemporary culture, but it was less than 20 years ago, or a little more than 20 years ago. And in many of the areas of the world today that are dominated by Islam, a man, depending on what part of the world it is, a man can have the right to beat or sexually to desert his wife, all with the full support of the Quran. Surah 434, which is in the Quran, says, Men stand superior to women, but to those whose perverseness you fear, admonish them and remove them into bedchambers and beat them. But if they suit to you, if they suit to you, then do not seek a way against them. 
So women today worldwide still suffer oppression, but the countries where women are held back, forbidden education, married off as children, and subjected to systemic abuse, such as honor killings and general cutting, are the countries where Christianity is largely disallowed. So that's the kind of the pagan picture of the degradation of women. Now let's talk about the secular response to that. First of all, we'll, we'll just focus mainly on the waves of feminism in our own culture across the last 60 or 70 years. First of all, I want to say something about feminism, that it's not a four-letter word, okay? It's an eight-letter word. Just kidding. Um, it's not meant to be a negative altogether idea. Sometimes the label feminist is cast in an exclusively negative light, and some can tend to label someone a feminist merely because they care about fairer treatment for women. Uh, this is misleading as it implies that those who stood up for women in the past shared the assumptions of modern feminism. But in reality, many of those who worked to improve the condition of women through the centuries were Christians, as we will soon see. Now, the origins of feminism can be traced back to Mary Wollstonecraft's Wollstonecraft's early manifesto in 1792 called A Vindication of the Rights of Women, where she argued that women should receive a rational education like men because they too were created in the image of God as rational beings. So her argument, the earliest feminist arguments in our culture were Christian arguments. They were arguments based on the image of God. Now we know later waves of feminism hijacked the Christian understanding of those things and took it in different directions. But the origins of that were distinctively Christian in terms of their motives and desires. Hannah Moore, uh, who was a Christian, wrote a book called The Modern System of Female Education in 1799, and she wanted to see girls educated and she wrote strictures on the modern system of female education to help support that. She worked to establish schools for poor girls as well as boys. So all the impulses of feminism are not bad, especially when they're coming from a biblical angle to empower and support the image of God in women. But that's not, to be, that's not all the case um, regarding feminism. I want to talk about feminism regarding its first and second waves in particular, and how that gave way to the sexual revolution and what results that had on the treatment of women. Well, you had, first of all, you had first wave feminism, which would have been the late 1800s, right around the time where those books were being written, up to the early 1900s, basically spanning a, a period of about 20, 25 years. And the whole goal here in these early feminist movements was equity. The goal was just fighting against legal discrimination for women in particular. It was the battle for women's rights in terms of women's voting rights, women's suffrage, um, ending coverature, which was women being represented by their husbands in all their legal matters where they weren't able to be represented themselves by themselves. Um, the right for women to own and manage their own property, access to better education and employment opportunities, legal rights for women in divorce, including custody of their children, an end to the double standard of morality, an end of the separate spheres and improvement in women's roles in the church. So first wave feminists were not seeking ordination, they weren't trying to become pastors, and they weren't seeking abortion, which they would say was murder. Margaret Sanger opened the first clinic for birth control in 1916, uh, which we know led to the starting of Planned Parenthood, but that was near the end of the first wave feminist movement. It was not a part of the first wave. Feminine movement. It was, in a sense, a response to it. Let's talk about second wave feminism briefly. Second wave feminism occurred roughly 1960 to 1990, and it was 
not viewed so much in the equity sense of wanting legal discrimination to be removed from women, but, but wanted to change how women were treated in the workforce, like opportunities to work as scientists, engineers, doctors, lawyers, things like that, fields which were mostly in that time limited to men. They also wanted to improve economic conditions, like being able to get credit cards or loans that weren't in their husband's name, again, fighting against that coverture idea. These simple vocational and economic advances joined together with a movement that sparked a division in second wave feminism, which was namely the sexual revolution of the 1960s. And the sexual revolution was kind of hopped on to this second, second wave feminism idea and took it beyond what some of those earlier second wave feminists desired to where they were looking for economic and vocational job advancement the sexual revolution took it in a sexual direction as well. So the sexual revolution sought to not just advance uh, women in society, but to liberate women entirely from sexual norms that were um, a product of the society at that time. They wanted to liberate women from marriage and motherhood and being homemakers from being what they called reproducers, from being consigned to old fashioned morality from men and their heteronormativity, and some of the modern expressions of the sexual revolution have carried on to our own day with homosexuality, transgenderism, and the like. Now, what happened as a result of the sexual revolution? Well, I want to I say that it betrayed women in a couple of different ways. The sexual revolution betrayed women because radical feminism told girls and women that romantic love was just a male ploy to get women. Women should therefore play the same game and use men for their own sexual enjoyment. But in reality, when society expected children to be born within marriage, men had the promise to support their wife. To get sex would cost them everything. Now, sex was commodified, it was cheap, and men could get sexual satisfaction or women could get sexual satisfaction without offering any commitment in return. And that left a lot of emotional, spiritual, and physical damage in its wake. Because sex, as we know from the Bible, is not just a biological function. Outside of a lasting covenant, it isn't safe at all. You can't separate the physical union from the spiritual and emotional one. So as many writers have noted, all the advances, quote-unquote, of the sexual revolution have come at the expense of women and children. So it betrayed women. Additionally, it victimized them. Perpetually portraying women as weak and vulnerable at every turn, the sexual revolution undermined the value of women. Casting women or any group as a class of powerless victims needing the advocacy of others is patronizing at best and insulting at worst. It's not liberating. It's enslaving because it means you have to get your identity from those who are trying to give it to you from the outside. It says women are at risk. Words harm them. Insults crush them. And the terrible irony is that this echoes precisely the attitudes and prejudices that feminism emerged to tackle in the first place. Ironically, when we victimize women, we demean women. And we also, when we demonize men, it hurts everyone. The tragedy of a lot of identity politics in our day is that it sets us all up against one another. When people demonize other groups, that's playing the devil's game. He seeks to kill and steal and destroy. Typically, men have supported their family by working and providing but radical feminists attack that breadwinning idea as a ploy by men to keep women subservient. 
and this devastating attack on manhood as expressed in a deep commitment to care for their family demonized men and hurt the family. Viewing all men as brutal or sexually predatory or potential rapists is not at all helpful. Women are not well served by indoctrinating them with the view that men are potential enemies and attackers. Also, children are sacrificed. Scientific advance now means that children can be deliberately brought into the world without any possibility of them living with or even knowing their biological mother and father. And the further we move away from the biblical family, the greater the risk is for children. According to a 2011 study, children living with their mother and her boyfriend were about 11 times more likely to be abused than children living with their married biological parents. Young people are encouraged to rely on their feelings as to when and whether they engage in sexual activity and to be given sole decision-making authority over which gender they identify and what steps should be taken therapeutically, medicinally, and surgically to align their feelings with their bodies. Children are being sacrificed as well. So that's sort of the betrayal that came as a result of that. Now it's kind of, I know that's, that's a lot of negative, right? That's a lot of, div, you know, set, is a, a pagan world that was corrupt and difficult and then a secular response that didn't help things, help things in some ways, but didn't help ways, things in other ways. I want to I turn and, and talk about the Bible, okay? Turn and talk about specifically the ministry of Jesus, the ministry of Paul, and the way the church followed their teaching in the ways they interacted with women and what difference that made in the culture. First of all, let's take just a few examples from the ministry of Jesus, right? Start with the Samaritan woman, John 4. So you all know the story, I hope. I won't read the whole story. I just want to read a couple pertinent verses. John chapter 4, verses 8 and 9. A woman from Samaria, Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. So what is Jesus doing here? He's, he is purposefully, intentionally breaking down stereotypes related to how men interacted with women in that culture. So he's breaking down cultural stereotypes in that he's a Jew, she's a Gentile. He's a man, she's a woman. He's a rabbi, she's a sinner, quote unquote. So he's breaking down those sort of stereotypes. He's also breaking down religious stereotypes too, right? Because she knows he's a rabbi. He looks like one. He's got a gang of disciples by him. So at least they had gone at that point. But, so, but, and then she asks, he asks her for something. That, that was very, I mean, she picks up on how, how that's a wrong thing to do. He asks her for a drink. Now, it's not just that Jesus is saying, hey, woman of Samaria, would you serve me? He's not, he's not doing it for that reason. He's, he's dignifying her. He's going to her and saying, would you please give me, you're drawing water from this well, would you please get me something? I'm going to, assuming drink from the vessels that you are using here. So she would feel very uncomfortable, but Jesus is willing to wade into that water to overturn some of those stereotypes. We also see it with Mary and Martha, right? In Luke chapter 10, verses 38 and 39. Now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, listen to this, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. 
Very countercultural. First of all, a rabbi going into a woman's house with no men present, sitting in that house, allowing those women to care for him, support him, serve him, and the fact that he would take on the role of teaching women as disciples was a, was a controversial thing. It was one thing for a rabbi to gather a group of men in a home and teach them. It's another thing for a rabbi to visit a woman's home and teach them. And this is what Jesus was doing. What about Mary of Magdala or Mary Magdalene? Well, in John chapter 20, verses 17 and 18, we read, Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. He specifically asked Mary to be an eyewitness of his resurrection to the disciples, when women's testimony in those days was not to be trusted. But he asked a woman to go testify to his disciples that he had, she had seen him and that her testimony was to be received. So again, we see Jesus dignifying women in various ways. He dignifies the, the, the woman at the well. He dignifies Mary and Martha. He dignifies Mary Magdalene. He dignifies women wherever he, and men wherever he encounters them, but specifically women who would have been viewed as outcasts, as less than. Jesus specifically in the Gospels will approach, interact with, and um, empower in the right sense, dignify those, uh, those women. What about Paul? So often Paul is pitted right against Jesus in terms of the way Paul would say that we are to interact with women and the way Jesus. Paul's this you know, heavy-handed. He's saying women have to be silent in the church and women have to you know, submit to their husbands as to the Lord and all that's true. But again, we have to read those verses in context and understand what Paul's talking about. One of the most interesting things, and we've gone through this in our First Corinthians series, is that Paul specifically breaks down the double standard of sexual immorality that would have existed in the first century. In 1 Corinthians 7, he says the, the wife's body belongs to the husband, which the whole secular culture of that day would have said, absolutely, Paul. But then what did he also say? The husband's body belongs to the wife, which would have been very countercultural for him to say. He was, he was breaking down that double standard of morality that often existed in the, in the early uh, Christian world. Also, he called wives to submit to their husbands, yes, but he called husbands to love their wives as Christ loved the church. So he was calling wives to submit to their Christ-imitating, sacrificially loving husbands. So the fact that he would have commands for wives would have struck the culture as, yeah, of course you do that. But the fact that he had instructions for husbands about the way they were to love their wives would have been very countercultural. And so Paul is just imitating Christ in that regard. Paul was also generous in his praise for his female co-workers like Phoebe and Priscilla and Mary and Tryphena and Trephosa and Persis in Romans 16. He praised and exalted and honored the women who worked alongside of him in his missionary work. Yodiah and Syntyche in Philippians chapter 4, although they were having a bit of a squabble and he was trying to get them to agree uh, in the Lord, nevertheless he said that they contended at his side for the cause of Christ. And he loved those women. He lived out his conviction that in Christ there was neither male nor female that was the ultimate 
identifying marker, Galatians 3.28. So Paul and his teaching about marriage and ministry and also Jesus and the way that he impact, uh, interacted with women had a deep impact on the way Christianity played itself out in its early years. I want to talk about a few different ways in which the teachings of Christ and the Apostle Paul impacted the church and the way it treated women. First of all, the church became very appealing for women. The church became an appealing place for women. What made Christianity in the early centuries so appealing for women? Why did the church grow? And, and in many ways today, I, if, you, if you see places in which the church is going, um, where, where it hasn't been in a while or perhaps never been, um, typically what happens, and this is probably not a universal rule, maybe, maybe Heath and his missiology could help me a little bit with this, um, but generally when you see, when you see pioneering mission, mission work take place where the gospel breaks new ground and goes into new areas, typically what's happening is women will receive it first. Women will come to Christ, the church will be gathered um, and then you'll see men start coming to Christ too. Now, I'm sure that that's plenty of times before in history have men come to Christ first. But it is, it is interesting that, by, that, that in many different ways in church history, you see that taking place. Now, what made Christianity so appealing for women? Well, first of all, the early church prohibited abortion and infanticide. Early Christians rescued many abandoned babies. We talked about that, I think, last week when Pastor Thad was teaching on protecting life. The babies that had been left to die by exposure, by forbidding abortion, which often killed women, and infanticide, Christians protected women more than their pagan neighbors did. Christianity also held men to the same standard as women. Men were expected to remain faithful to their wives and not to have sex outside of marriage. Christians discouraged divorce and made it harder to obtain, which protected women from abandonment. The church cared for Christian widows and did not require them to remarry, especially if they were older. If a wealthy woman became a widow, she was allowed to manage her husband's estate. If a poor woman became a widow, the church provided for her if she did not have family to help her. Christian women had more freedom than pagan Greek and Roman women did. Tertullian, early church father, advised his wife not to marry a pagan if he were to die because a pagan husband would not allow his wife the liberty that Christian women would expect. So he said, don't. Don't, don't, if I were to die, don't, don't marry a non-Christian. Your life will be much harder than if you were married to a Christian man. Now, that, obviously, there's other reasons beyond that, but it is interesting that he, ch that he chose that as one of the reasons. Now, what was the response of the early Roman Empire to this appeal of Christianity uh, for women? Well, interestingly, I'll, I'll give you a couple of different examples. Christianity was so appealing to women in the early years of the church, that Roman Emperor Valentinian ordered Christian missionaries to stop evangelizing pagan women. <laughs> stop evangelizing our women. <laughs> there, too many of them are coming to Christ, and you're disrupting the peace of the empire. You're not allowing us to exercise. It's, it's messing with our culture here. Also, the Emperor Julian the Apostate lamented that Christians who he, whom he hated showed love and compassion, whereas his countrymen did not. And Julian famously said, the impious Galileans relieve both their poor and ours. So now, what did he mean by impious Galileans? He meant Christians. That's impious because they weren't worshipers of the Roman emperor. They were part of a cult, this Jesus cult. And uh, 
So they were, and they were Galileans. They followed the Galilean Jesus. So these impious Galileans relieve both their poor and our poor. You don't have to be a Christian to receive the compassion of the church. In 428, under the influence of Basil of Caesarea, another early church father, the Eastern Emperor Theodosius II proclaimed that those who've been trapped in prostitution should be helped out, given alternative means of living, and not penalized for what they were coerced into doing. Those who had coerced them, whether slave owners, fathers, or pimps, were to be punished. So you had, even in the early 400s, this, this effect on the empire. And then Emperor Justinian committed a special task force to investigate the use of coercion in the sex industry in Constantinople. He actively sought to suppress sexual exploitation in his empire. He and his wife, Theodosia, financed a refuge for reformed prostitutes to help get them out of it. All, again, under the influence of the Christian church. And this led, of course, to the spread of Christianity. So I want to talk about four different particular women here that um, the Lord used. And uh, I wish you could see them on the, on the screen, but uh, I trust you at least will know the, many of their names. First of all, let's talk about Ann Judson, Adoniram's wife. Ann Judson, born in 1789, died in 1826. She was the first female missionary, along with her husband, to the Far East from America. And with her husband, Adoniram, she pioneered the Christian mission in Burma, now Miramar, um, focusing especially on educating girls. Anne believed that Christian education was the means by which Asian females could be liberated from what was all too often a degraded and miserable life. And so in 1822, she published a widely read address to women in America to financially support the education of women in the East. And when she died prematurely, her death inspired many other women to volunteer for the cause and go work in Burma. And the legacy of the Judsons in that area of the world continues down to this day. So that was Ann Judson. What about Fidelia Fisk? She was born in 1816 and died in 1864. She traveled in 1843 from America to Persia, which is now Iran, to pioneer female education in the region. She said the following, the women were regarded by the men as drudges and slaves and were compelled to spend most of the time in outdoor labor among the vineyards and wheat fields, often going out to work carrying not only their heavy implements but their babies as well. When at evening they returned from the fields, however weary, they had to milk the cows, prepare their husband's meal, and wait till he had finished before having any food themselves. It was commonplace for husbands to beat their wives brutally. Sounds like early paganism, right? Well, in some ways it was, and that era of Iran in 1843. But after 16 years of working there, Fidelia Fisk had established a successful school for girls and the lives of many women had been transformed. What about William Carey? William Carey in 1761, lived in 1761 to 1834, um, famous missionary. But among many of his other social reforms, Carey and his fellow missionaries set up the first school for girls in Southern India. If women were educated and able to earn a living, they could break the practice of widow burning, which was practiced partly because widows were regarded as an economic liability, since they were forbidden to marry and forbidden to earn a living. So he thought, we can educate these girls, get them employment, they won't have to be sacrificed. So William Carey campaigned ceaselessly against the practice of widow burning. 
Many of the widows who died in this way were themselves no more than children. And Carey conducted rigorous research and publicized what was going on in southern India. And one of his greatest allies in England was a man by the name of William Wilberforce. And it took 25 years before the campaign against widow burning was successful. Often during that period, Wilberforce would insist on reading out the names of widows who had been killed in this way during family breakfast before his family prayers. And the practice was finally made a criminal offense in 1829, about five years before Carey died. Finally, uh, Josephine Butler, 1828 to 1906. Josephine Butler fought for female education and against the sexual exploitation of women. She and her husband opened their home to provide shelter and a way out of prostitution for desperate women. She was relentless and was successful at raising the age of consent to 16. She campaigned against the Contagious Diseases Act, which were designed to provide a safe supply of prostitutes to the armed forces. She believed that prostitution was an evil which should not be regulated or condoned, but rather eliminated. And so Josephine Butler was courageous in that regard. So what, what we've seen so far, just a, just a quick review, you, you saw some, some snapshots of the early kind of pagan world of Greece and Rome, the kind of secular response in America to, with, with the, the good aspects of feminism, the sort of the negative aspects of feminism. And then we kind of went over into scripture, saw a little bit about the ministry of Jesus regarding the Samaritan woman, Mary and Martha, Mary of Magdalene, Mary Magdalene, teaching the apostle Paul, and how that impacted the early church, specifically leading many Roman emperors to make some key decisions regarding the treatment of women in their empires. And then also just some snapshots from church history regarding women in mission and the ways in which they were able to work, advance the cause of Christ in different spheres. So is it true what we read at the beginning that Christianity is really just a tool for patriarchy and male oppression? Um, there was one book that's been recently written, 2010, it's called Half the Sky, Half the Sky, H-A-L-F, Half the Sky, subtitled Turning Oppression into Opportunity for Women Worldwide. So in 2010, this book was produced. It's called Half the Sky. It was a national bestseller. Um, and it was, a, it was a book written by feminists that documented the, 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 the realities of female oppression worldwide. And here was the conclusion in that book. Again, not authored by, from a Christian perspective, but people who did honest historical work. The conclusion from the liberal feminist authors was that an honest assessment of the facts revealed that Bible-believing Christians are to be found fighting against female oppression in the hardest places on earth. That, that's the response. That was the conclusion. Only Christians, they said, were willing to devote a lifetime to ministry and those appalling conditions because you need an eternal perspective to be willing to sacrifice your whole life. So praise the Lord for faithful women and faithful men who have carried the gospel into places where women especially were on the aggressive oppression end of society and were able to work in such ways as to help not just make their lives better, but in preaching the gospel, bring them into Christ, save their soul, reconcile them to God. 
And so we see this over and over and over again. All right, we got a few minutes. Um, finished up a little bit early. I was going to stop it at a couple of points with if we had um, if we had video or some audio and video capabilities, but that didn't happen this morning. So, any thoughts from from any of y'all? I know we kind of went through that kind of quickly, but I just tried to hit some snapshots of things. But any any of your all's thoughts, feedback, comments, questions, anything before we wrap up? Yeah, Kim, Kimberly, you've done a little work on this. Kimberly's doing her PhD in, in things like this, so, yeah. And something that I just wanted to share that I've really been struck with, especially with all the growth we made over time, you see all the women uh, that are screaming and yelling about this is just terrible and it affects their lives. And, you know, you look at them and you go, are you pregnant? Are you, you know, like, how is this affecting your life? Why is it so bad? And it's basically because of the two main things, uh, their voicelessness and invisibility It's sad that that's where the agency lies, right? Like, that's that's the, and I guess that's why you know pro-choice has become such a, you know, a huge moniker, not just to avoid the label of abortion, but that choice idea, right? That that is is such a powerful sort of thing. So. Right. Right. Yep. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I think I think that's what, you know, we were, we were seeing is like that's one thing that made especially you think about truly vulnerable women, widows, women under very, very oppressive cultures and governments um, seeing in the church an authority where there's it's life giving and it applies to everybody. Right. Like the men aren't under God. You're under God. No, we're all under God. And, and that being a liberating environment rather than an oppressive one. Yeah. Jim. You know, the great plan of salvation that God had for us, he, he chose to send his son through the vehicle of a woman. Yeah. There could have been another way for that. I'm sure God could figure out another way to present his son to us. But that was the way he chose elevating the status of Mary. Yeah. And not to where we worship him. Right. But also in the, in the feminist movement, it's, it's downplayed the role of being a mother. Yeah. Being a, a God-given right to bear children. Right. Right. Yeah. It in in that sense, it undermines, you know, it, because it undermines the the beauty and dignity of those of those things, which no man can do <laughs> at all. Uh, we admire our sisters who can have. 
you can produce human beings. Like, you can't do that. Our part is very small in all that, uh, all that endeavor. So yeah, for sure. Any other comments? Yeah, Tammy. Yeah. 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 And that really being an emphasis. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's a uh, certainly been strange days, strange times we're living in. But I, I hope that the Lord encouraged your hearts this morning just to see the way in which He used His people to change those realities and. Um, and ultimately, that's what the Church of Jesus Christ is supposed to be, right? We're supposed to be a place in which um, men and women in Christ can flourish and uh, grow. And um, all in the, the God-given differences and distinctions that we have, but nevertheless, we can, we can grow together as brothers and sisters and, uh, and, um, and, and be, a, be a light in a world that doesn't understand how these things can coexist, you know? Um, how can you have this religious system that we view as so oppressive and, and how, how is it that men and women are happy? What, what is this? And, 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 uh, and, and things like that. And just kind of breaking down some of those uh, categories that we often um, struggle with in the culture that don't make sense, but the gospel makes them make sense. So let's pray together and we'll be uh, dismissed. Father, thank you so much for your gospel. Thank you for the ways in which you have worked in um, our lives to bring us to a knowledge of Jesus and uh, to reconcile us with yourself and to bring us into a family as a, as a local church. Thank you for each one of my brothers and sisters here this morning that love you and that love each other. And Lord, we want your church worldwide um, to continue to flourish and grow. We know um, the church is uh, um, militant in this time. That is, it's, it's under attack and it's and it's fallen, and it's sinful, and it's struggling, and it's small in many places. But nevertheless, we are the salt of the earth. We are the light of the world. And so, Lord, however small that salt is, or however small that light is, Lord, may we be faithful to push back those elements of decay uh, that you intended salt to, to have, and also to shine the light in the darkness, uh, to be that city on a hill, um, that you've designed us to be. And thank you that we've seen that in, in even these snapshots in church history this morning. Thank you for the opportunity to, to see um, the ways in which our brothers and sisters um, hundreds of years ago, um, even down to the first century of the church, were able to, um, to, to, to live these things out and to, and to impact their neighbors um, in, in such ways. So Lord, use us in these days to do the same for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, we're dismissed. Thank you all.